Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during the pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, in partnership with the American Academy of Family Physicians, we'll be focusing on the rise of telehealth as a means to help treat and care for those dealing with COVID-19. To discuss this, our IDSA member, Dr. Javed Siddiqui of telmed to you and Dr. Taman Osborne-Roberts with the American Academy of Family Physicians Commission on Quality and Practice. Thank you both for being with me. And Dr. Siddiqui, let's start with you. The Department of Health and Human Services public health emergency declared last year to combat the COVID-19 pandemic has been extended, which allows providers to continue to leverage the COVID-19 waivers and regulatory flexibilities released by HHS. Dr. Siddiqui, how does this extension affect the provision of telehealth services during the pandemic? The public health emergency, which we refer to as the PHE, has been incredibly important because the PHE, as everyone knows, removed um, a few restrictions that CMS has had on telehealth for quite some time. Number one, it eliminated the metropolitan service area. Um, So we can provide telemedicine anywhere in the United States, whether it's to urban areas. And as you know, uh, the urban underserved, um, I think, has long been neglected with regards from a telehealth standpoint. And it also allows us to deliver healthcare to the patient's home. Now, these two have been a bit of the last mile of telehealth. Uh, they're the last two issues that we've been working very closely with healthcare legislators in order to eliminate. So the public health emergency suspended both of those. Now, to be clear, the public health emergency, uh, we really hope will then expand and let CMS know that both of these regulations need to be suspended permanently. Because really, to be able to provide telehealth to the home is critically important, not only during this pandemic, but just in general, because what we've been able to do during this time is that because we're able to see patients at home, one, simple things like reviewing patients' uh, laboratory data. Well, do do we really require patients to come in to a bricks and mortar office in order to just have them uh, review their laboratory data? Secondly, to be able to do medication refill. But more importantly, to deliver really important care, such as diabetes care. It's been wonderful that our certified diabetic educators and nutritionists have been able to do their visits and educations right in the patient's home. And they've been able to do things like, let me see your kitchen. Let's go into your pantry. Let's take a look in your refrigerator. So it's been much more meaningful in that sense. And then obviously on the inpatient side, to be able to deliver telemedicine and especially expand access to infectious disease physicians in urban areas has been critically important. During this public health emergency, we've been able to get the limited resource of infectious disease physicians to hospitals that really need it and also to provide a respite for those providers that are just absolutely exhausted and overwhelmed with the pandemic. So the public health emergency and the CMS regulations have been crucial Uh, And I really hope that CMS will take this into account as they look for long-term solutions. Excellent points, Dr. Siddiqui. Thank you for sharing those. Dr. Osborne-Roberts, turning to you now, what are the basics needed to provide a successful telemedical visit? Uh, There's really an overall basic seven-piece framework uh, that's necessary for practices to really transition 
into telehealth visits. And it's very similar to other sorts of reforms inside of our practice that many of us have made voluntarily or through compulsion <laughs> over the past several years. Uh, and it, it really follows a, a lot of, of similar sorts of frameworks. So really the first thing that you have to do in any given practice, and uh, a lot of the time we think about starting with the technology. In this case, it really, as with most things in a practice, starts with human beings. First thing you have to do is to establish appropriate roles and responsibilities uh, for what is going to happen inside of the practice. Uh, you have to discuss you know, who uh, will uh, lead this transformation clinically, who will lead it operationally and administratively, and you'll have to think about the uh, IT implications of this as well. That's you know, really the, the initial planning phase, if you will, at management. The next thing you really have to do is to check your licensing and your legal requirements for telemedicine. These differ substantially state to state. Now, right now, because of the pandemic, there is some flexibility being granted at uh, the state uh, and federal levels as to uh, licensing and legal requirements, but those are not anticipated to remain on the books forever. And it'll be uh, very important that in regards to insurance, both patient insurance and uh, provider malpractice, in regards to prescribing limitations, privacy, security, all of these sorts of things, that you have a good understanding on the ground, that practices have a good understanding on the ground of that. The next thing is that you have to really think about how to customize uh, an approach uh, in the practice that is really telehealth appropriate. You have to determine which patients are appropriate for care via telehealth and which are not, because as we all know, some patients uh, can be taken care of in ways that are not uh, on the ground, face-to-face, -face, synchronous sorts of situations. Other patients really do require that level of intensiveness. Uh, and it's important to think, even before getting into telehealth, about how to determine which patients are which, uh, who shall determine which patients are which, are there triage or other sorts of mechanisms you can use, or does it have to be done patient by patient? And to really come up with, if you will, a basic checklist and take a look at your patient population, a quick sample to see if the means for doing that that you've developed are going to work. Next thing you have to do, finally, we're, we're at uh, step four of seven, is to actually assess the technology. There are many different options out there right now to support telehealth. They break down into two broad categories, standalone products and uh, electronic health record uh, integrated products. Uh, they each have their pros and their cons, and it will be important to investigate both with any vendors. But as you talk to vendors, you may want to think about a range of different things, their experience and their existing clients, uh, the functionality for the practice, the functionality for the patient, which is oftentimes very different than functionality for the practice. Product integration costs, you know, um, security, all the typical things that many of us have thought about already for our EHRs, but with a specific eye towards a telehealth environment. And then, of course, you know, after you've chosen that, you'll have to think about implementing and then conducting some sort of rapid cycle uh, testing and improvement and adjustments uh, as you use it. Because as we've all gotten used to with EHRs, uh, they're seldom perfect on the first go around. So it, it really is a process. Next step is really thinking about your patient's digital journey. Oftentimes, we have been able to take in-person practice journeys for granted. A lot of that happens outside of our view. The patient gets in their car, they drive over to us, they find their way in the building and up to our office, uh, and their journey with us only begins as they step through the door, and it really, in many cases, stops as uh, they leave our practice. It is not the case with telehealth. You have to think about getting them scheduled for that, and you have to think about 
whether or not they're going to need further support to implement the technology, you know, either at a baseline level or if they run into problems uh, in accessing uh, some sort of uh, online or, or, or health environment. Uh, you then need to think about uh, how you can help them over the, the course of their visit with you. Is there a digital waiting room, for instance, where they can wait until you're ready for them? If you're not running on time, how do you notify them? All those sorts of things. And then they need a feedback mechanism because if there's one thing that patients have come to expect, much as they expect in all of the places they are uh, on a a phone call or on a video uh, or somewhere online, they really do expect to be able to provide some commentary and some feedback back. And that can really help your practice get this right. Uh, you'll have to redesign your workflow. I think that goes without saying, but at the same time, you have to think about an optimal environment for delivering care. Many of us are working from home, uh, but do all of us have spaces at home that are going to be optimal, that are going to be well lit if it's a video visit, that are going to be private, confidential, quiet, and do we have the technology needs? Do we have a high definition webcam, high definition microphone that are going to, to work with this? You know, are we, how are we going to schedule? You know, are we going to schedule time blocks for telehealth? Are we going to have specific days for it within the practice? Will it be uh, on call or an open schedule? These are things that have to be considered and of course, there are documentation and consent requirements. And for video visits in particular, the documenting uh, consent is, is sometimes a slightly different process than it is. And then, of course, the, the, the real final piece of it is to assess how it goes, iterate, improve, and change. And uh, most of us are familiar with PDSA cycles, plan, do, study, act, and uh, ways to go through that process. So I know that sounds like a lot for basics, but that is really the basics of how to implement telehealth within any given practice. Thank you for walking us through that, Dr. Osborne Roberts. I'm going to turn to Dr. Siddiqui now and dovetail a little bit on what you were discussing in that many hospitals and ICUs around the country are overwhelmed with COVID-19 cases. Does the option of telehealth relieve that burden? You know, um, I couldn't agree with Dr. Osborne Roberts um, anymore, you know, and I really appreciate him highlighting that telemedicine is not about the technology. It's always been about the operations. Um, when uh, I first started doing telemedicine back in 2002, we learned very quickly it wasn't about the technology. And I think one of the reasons that whether you're doing inpatient or outpatient telemedicine, that people are less successful is because they don't put enough time and attention into the workflow and the, the, the points that... Dr. Osborne Roberts really highlighted, which are absolutely crucial. When it comes to hospitals, again, um, unfortunately, I think one of the things that I've struggled with in healthcare my entire career is that just the field of health tends to be a laggard. If you look at the law of diffusion of innovation, right? Not only do we tend to be a laggard, we tend to be a late laggard. Our hospitals right now during this pandemic are absolutely overwhelmed. Our ICUs are overwhelmed. Our infectious disease colleagues are absolutely exhausted. And I think that telemedicine is an appropriate tool to try to help fill some of those gaps, right? Is it the be all end all? Is it gonna solve all the problems? Absolutely not. But can it assist? Yes, it can. I think early on myself and some of my colleagues and uh, Dr. Doherty and in Kentucky was, I think, very, very much a leader in this, is really looking at telemedicine as a PPE preservative preservation strategy, right? By using a telemedicine device in a patient's room, you could see a physician, other members of the healthcare team keep an eye on that patient without having to don and doff PPE. There's definite opportunities where telemedicine can come in and make a difference. 
I think, unfortunately, the reason why we haven't seen more of it uh, has really been uh, the lack of uh, imagination and willingness to adopt some of these measures. Because I really do feel that my that my colleagues across the country, and specifically um, as I'm located in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, with what's going on in Los Angeles, that we could really use telemedicine to help with uh, just the overwhelming surge that's occurring. But I have to tell you that uh, when we contact uh, hospitals uh, to offer them services, uh, I'd say that there's more of a hesitation and there really isn't acceptance. So well, we have to expand our ability to look at alternative solutions. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Thank you, Dr. Siddiqui. Dr. Osborne Roberts, have there been any technological advances regarding the use of telehealth, or did we already have what was needed? Well, I think that depends on which segment of technology we're looking at. I would say that in regards to uh, the hardware, if you will, much of what most of us need for telemedicine already exists. The vast majority of people uh, in the country have a computer or a smartphone. Most of those have appropriately powerful microphones and cameras and the various assorted other things that we need for the basics, the infrastructure, if you will, uh, of the visit. Uh, But there have really been two places where there are substantial upgrades going on right now and that will continue to improve. Those are both uh, in the realm of software uh, and also in in the realm of human software, and I'll explain that in just a moment. In regards to uh, the realm of software applications, things of that nature, as we discussed earlier, telemedicine to a large degree has a very similar, excuse me, a very similar structure and a very similar feel to what can happen in an office visit. Ideally, there will be a lot of parallels. What we're seeing uh, is that people who have traditionally provided a range of the online platforms, the video platforms, the health platforms that we use are now beginning to really understand that patients want to have that similar experience and are starting to design products that are going to mirror that. One good example is the virtual waiting room. Previously and initially, a number of the platforms we were using would be more socially oriented, where two people log on and then things just kind of start and it has a bit more of an informal piece to it. A virtual waiting room, a place where providers and patients and other members of the healthcare team can go initially and prepare themselves and wait, whereas much more what happens in an actual practice allows people to get themselves readily, uh, excuse me, ready mentally, if you will, for any given visit, and allows much more of a traditional quote-unquote feel to how a visit goes. And as we continue to go along, you will see these sorts of innovations, those, you'll see further integration into the electronic health record, you'll see further opportunities uh, for patients uh, to provide feedback. You'll see on the hardware side, but also on the software side, peripherals being able to plug in to both EHRs uh, and uh, the platforms so that you can monitor vital signs and things of that nature live time. That's more in its infancy, but I believe that's coming. So you're seeing innovation there. And then as uh, Dr. Siddiqui pointed out, there's the human software, human application component. And by that, I mean the change in all of our minds. The reality is that uh, I once heard a consultant say that all innovation in healthcare is operational. Well, I wouldn't say all, but I would say that uh, operation innovation is a very large proportion 
And as we move into this, a lot of it is going to be driven by the way people work, the way people think, how we can reorganize workflows, and the interaction between that and some of the technological advances. It's probably not all technology or all human, but this interesting thing right in the center. This pandemic has also clearly identified the digital divide that occurs in the United States. Um, we have uh, patients that just don't have access to broadband. And I think that we need to separate the fact that who has internet access to those who, has a, who have access to broadband. Uh, we highlighted this in a paper that we wrote uh, in Open Forum Infectious Diseases a couple months ago to really highlight that some of our patients just didn't have access to broadband. We couldn't connect with them. So I think the digital divide is something that we really need to address. It's something that's absolutely been highlighted during this uh, pandemic and something that uh, as we look at expanding telemedicine, again, whether it's the urban setting or rural setting, uh, we have to get uh, more access to broadband throughout the country. In, in addition to broadband, there are other pieces to it. There's uh, socioeconomic considerations within that, which sometimes track with the broadband issues, uh, other times not, not as much. There are ethnic, cultural, and racial issues uh, around this. Uh, there are many people who have distrusted the digital environment for a range of things already, uh, and those can be compounded by the experiences of particular communities and uh, the experiences that they've had. Uh, with trust uh, within healthcare, uh, so it's 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 a fairly complex issue, and is it, it's at times it can seem like a brave new world. Other times it it it's important to realize that there are still barriers and still very human sorts of things to solve. Fascinating points from both of you, doctors. Thank you so much for sharing them, Doctor Siddiqui. Can you explain how better, more efficient use of technology is contributing to more quality and effective telehealth visits? To be able to expand the utilization of telemedicine, and I think. Um, one example is that uh, one of our hospitals, um, each of the COVID unit, each uh, within the COVID unit, each of the rooms has a video conferencing device. And what that's been able to do is it's been able to do, uh, allow healthcare professionals such as myself, my colleagues, uh, everyone on the healthcare team to be more connected with the patient, right? And I think that the patients appreciate that. They see the ability to be able to connect to providers and to be able to connect with the healthcare team. So I, I really think it's been more about access. It's been more about um, willingness to implement. And I think not only has that advanced the field of telemedicine dramatically, but I think it's really shown what we've always said, that telemedicine plays a key role in helping to expand access to care. This last question I'd like to pose to both of you doctors. Telehealth has changed the way clinicians treat and monitor patients, as you know. Since the pandemic started, how much more are clinicians relying on telemedicine to properly treat patients, and what are the benefits associated with this type of treatment? In my experience, clinicians are relying on this particular technology much, much more than in the past. And obviously, the pandemic has provided an opportunity, not simply for practices to innovate in this space, but for patients to also reassess this particular technology and their relationship to it. Uh, traditionally, telemedicine has been a technology that patients have been more hesitant about, but given the safety concerns nowadays, they're being uh, a little more willing to, to utilize this. In regards to benefits, it really, for me, simply boils down to meeting patients where they are. 
uh, time was that primary care physicians in particular could go out and do house calls and the current economic system in which we practice medicine really doesn't allow those sorts of things anymore. To some degree, in a number of cases, this is almost the rebirth of the house call. It's a chance for patients if they want to come see us in the office to do that, but if they cannot or would prefer to be seen in another venue to allow this to happen. And that is a huge opportunity for patients to access healthcare in a way that they feel comfortable with and that gets them the best outcomes for them. Yes, the word rely, because of the pandemic, we are relying on telemedicine, but I also feel that it is exposing both patients and providers to the value of telemedicine. Getting back to what I said at the beginning, it's really shown both patients as well as providers that we can use alternative types of visits to accomplish things that we just, that healthcare as general has been reluctant to think of. So for my patients, obviously because of the pandemic, they don't want to come into the clinic, we've been able to see them at home. And yes, we've, we call it the virtual house call, but it's also just an alternative side of care uh, to be able to manage disease states such as follow up on hepatitis C treatment, follow up on HIV, follow up on uh, laboratory data, post-hospital discharge. I think it's showing the healthcare community and the patients that you can achieve quality healthcare delivery in an alternative setting that's much more user-friendly. And that's what telemedicine has always promised since uh, its inception. So it's wonderful to see its full application even though it's during this very difficult time of a global pandemic. Doctors, any final thoughts before we close? I'd just like to thank you for the tremendous opportunity to continue to talk about telemedicine and telehealth. I think it's an incredibly important topic and and appreciate the opportunity. And and thank you, Dr. Osborne Roberts, for all that you're doing and the uh, organization is doing as well. And I'd also like to say thank you to Dr. Siddiqui for his continued expertise and, and, and teaching on this point. And thank you for giving uh, myself and the AAFP the opportunity to uh, discuss this in, in more detail. Everyone stay safe out there. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Osborne, Roberts, and Siddiqui for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's Real-Time Learning Network, covid19learningnetwork.org. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.